This is the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 1, Episode 7. The second of two parts on the New International Version of the Bible. Last week, I covered the history of the New International Version and began to touch on the criticisms of its translation methodology. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. I addressed the gender-neutral language issue last week and will dive a little deeper into it this week. Also, I will address the problems and benefits of it being a paraphrase. In doing so, I will compare several passages from the NIV to prior versions, so you can be your own judge of the impact of the methodology. So let's get started. The criticism of the NIV was infrequent when the first edition of the version was released. But as it grew in popularity, so did the number of critics. Most were critical of the translation philosophy, commonly called dynamic equivalence, which was a departure from the word-for-word literal philosophy that had been followed with the line of Bibles that trace their heritage to the King James Version. The translator's moderate use of the dynamic equivalence method in the version involved a trade-off in which accuracy was sometimes sacrificed for the sake of readability. Overall, it's easily seen that beginning with this initial printing, the NIV was well-received in most evangelical circles and even a few fundamentalist groups. Of course, this should not come as a surprise given the denominations that participated in the revision. However, even in the beginning, there were dissenters. For example, Stuart Custer, former chair of the Bible department at the conservative, fundamentalist Bob Jones University, complained that it was, quoting, "...highly interpretive and very free, a new evangelical translation." that deliberately removes all the old pronouns, such as thou, thee, and thy, even from the prayer addressed to God, end quote. From a different side of the theological spectrum, a Lutheran observer concluded that, although there are certainly worse translations on the market, there appears to be little about the NIV which encourages replacing the New American Standard Bible, the Modern Language Bible, or even an expunged Revised Standard Version with it. The preface of the NIV emphasizes the diverse backgrounds of those involved in its making and the impact of those people on the translation. Specifically, that they were from many denominations and that their diverse backgrounds served, quoting again, to safeguard the translation from sectarian bias, end quote. Critics think otherwise, as they often do. In 2009, N.T. Wright, at the time the Anglican Bishop of Durham and a British New Testament scholar, wrote that the 1980 NIV obscured what the Apostle Paul was attempting to communicate, making sure that he, meaning Paul, conformed to Protestant and evangelical tradition. He wrote, and bear with me, as this is a long quote, but I wish to avoid paraphrasing him. When the New International Version was published in 1980, I was one of those who held it with delight. I believed its own claim about itself, that it was determined to translate exactly what was there, and inject no extra paraphrasing or interpretive glosses. Disillusionment set in over the next two years as I lectured verse by verse through several of Paul's letters, not least Galatians and Romans. Again and again, with the Greek text in front of me and the NIV beside it, I discovered that the translators had another principle, considerably higher than the stated one. To make sure that Paul should say what the broadly Protestant and evangelical tradition said he said, If a church only or mainly relies on the NIV, it will, quite simply, never understand what Paul was talking about, end quote. In another example, the word Alma in Isaiah 7.14 was rendered virgin in the NIV in accordance with the interpretation of the word in the first chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. This contrasted with the Revised Standard Version's rendering young woman in Isaiah 7.17, which was used instead of Matthew's virgin, 
because the Revised Standard Version translators believed that Matthew was simply mistaken about the meaning of the word. But this was not an option for the NIV translators, who as theological conservatives were bound, among other things, by the oath they took to affirm that Matthew correctly interpreted the word. In Genesis 2.19, the NIV rendered the first verb in what linguists call an English plural perfect. Quoting Genesis, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man. End quote. The plural perfect had formed was used here so as to explicitly harmonize the verse with the account of creation given in chapter 1, in which the animals are created prior to the creation of man. This so-called harmonistic rendering was intended to counter the assertion that the story beginning at Genesis 2-4 is from a source which does not agree with the account in the first chapter. I'll dive deeper into Genesis 1 and 2 in a few episodes. In Genesis 2.19, a translation such as the New Revised Standard Version uses the word formed in a plain past tense, quoting, So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal, end quote. Theologian John Selhammer, a professor at Golden Gate Theological Seminary and a former president of the Evangelical Theological Society, stated, quoting him, Not only is such a translation hardly possible, but it misses the very point of the narrative. Namely, that the animals were created in response to God's declaration that it was not good that the man should be alone, end quote. But in my opinion, and granted I wasn't there to witness the event, the addition of the word had really doesn't change the meaning. In both, God formed the animals. To me, the timing of it is all very irrelevant. Further, the critics claim that the 2011 New International Version altered key verses that define the roles of women, such as 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, the King James Version reads, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And the Revised Standard Version reads, I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men. She is to keep silent. While the NIV reads, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. The difference is if a woman can have authority over a man or a group of men. In my mind, once again, the difference is minor and really doesn't change the meaning of the passage. The difference between the NIV and earlier versions in Nahum chapter 3, verse 13, is a little starker. The King James Version reads, Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. And the Revised Standard Version reads, Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your foes. Fire has devoured your bars. While the 2011 NIV reads, Look at your troops. They are all weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. These alterations were viewed by critics as allowing for an interpretation consistent with cultural norms regarding the equality of women and men, but were not seen as accurately reflecting the original language of the scriptures. But I'll let you judge for yourself. The Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, yes, there is such an organization, which reviewed the 2011 NIV, issued a statement saying they could not endorse it because of what they said were over 3,600 gender-related problems. Their words, not mine. However, the professor of New Testament studies at the Dallas Theological Seminary, Daniel B. Wallace, praised the 2011 update, saying, quote, It is a well-thought-out translation with checks and balances through rigorous testing, overlapping committees to ensure consistency and accuracy. End quote. 
but the Southern Baptist Convention rejected the 2011 update because of gender-neutral language, even though it dropped some of the gender-neutral language of the previous Today's New International Version. However, the Southern Baptist publisher and retailer Lifeway declined the Southern Baptist Convention's request to censor and therefore removed the updated New International Version from their stores. Also, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cautioned against its use, but the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod stated many decisions made in the updated translation are right and defensible. In Esther 8.11, the NIV adjusts something that many readers of the Bible, and actually many non-Judeo-Christians too, have found objectionable. The narrative states that a decree issued by Xerxes allowed the Jews to massacre the whole population of any nation that threatens their lives. According to the Jewish Publication Society's translation in 1985, quoting, The king has permitted the Jews of every city to assemble and fight for their lives. If any people or province attacks them, they may destroy, massacre, and exterminate its armed forces together with women and children and plunder their possessions, end quote. Likewise, the King James American Standard, Revised Standard, and many other versions present the passage similarly. When we compare this decree with Haman's decree in Esther 3.13, we see that it is an example of the principle of lex to lioness, that the retaliation matches the crime, or in this case, the contemplated crime. But for most modern readers, this is not acceptable. And so the NIV states that the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children. The difference here is fairly apparent when viewed from a written source. But this podcast isn't written, so I'll talk you through the difference. In the traditional reading, Xerxes gave the Jews the right to destroy, massacre, and exterminate any people or province that may attack them. In doing so, they were allowed to destroy, massacre, and exterminate the attacker's army, the attacker's women, and the attacker's children. If the word had been around at the time, some might have considered this to be genocide. However, in its strictest definition, it was not, but it did get really close to the line. It's more of a very extreme type of total war in scorched earth. They were also afforded the right to plunder. In the NIV, the Jews were permitted to destroy, kill, and annihilate any army of any nation or province that attacked them, their women, or their children. They were still able to plunder. With the exception of plundering, this is more of a version of how wars have been waged in the last half-century of the Western world. Armies are attacked, but a concerted effort is made to minimize civilian casualties. And yes, this is the same Xerxes that was depicted in many movies, including the CGI-laden 300. Another difference between the NIV and earlier versions arises in Jeremiah 7:22 through 23 where it was written as, For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them... I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you, that it may go well with you. End quote. According to scholars, there is nothing in the Hebrew sentence corresponding with the word just. Earlier versions were different. Revised Standard Version was written, For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you, 
It is thought that the translators of the NIV added the word just to prevent readers from thinking that Jeremiah is denying that the laws concerning sacrificial offerings were given by God at Mount Sinai. The NIV's interpretation is justifiable, pardon the word choice, because the Hebrew manner of speaking often sets two things in opposition only to emphasize the greater importance of the one. It could be said that the addition of the word just only makes the meaning clearer in our more exact way of speaking. However, some liberal scholars who claim that Jeremiah was written before the Pentateuch was compiled have argued here that the prophet really is denying that the laws concerning sacrifice were given by God. The NIV rendering prevents that interpretation. Does it really matter? Well, not to me. I have never felt the need for burnt offerings or sacrifices. But, considering that both explanations are plausible, it further serves to demonstrate the problems in interpreting an old text to a modern language. A curious difference lies in Jonah 3.3, where the Hebrew source states that Nineveh was a city of three days' walk. The Revised Standard Version and some others have interpreted this to mean that the city was a three days' journey in breadth, which implies that the biblical author thought that Nineveh was at least 60 miles or about 97 kilometers across. This is obviously unlikely, and archaeological excavations have revealed that the walled city was about three miles across and some scholars have considered it to be a gross exaggeration. But the three days' walk need not be interpreted this way. It may refer to the circumference of the greater Nineveh when the suburbs are considered. My elementary school geometry tells me that if the circumference was 60 miles, then it would have been about 9.5 miles or 15 kilometers across. This certainly seems a little bit more reasonable. By the way, this interpretation is supported by Genesis 10, verses 11 through 12, in which Nineveh and its suburbs are collectively called a, quote, great city. It could also be interpreted as saying that it would take a man three days to walk through all of its streets without attributing any error to the author. The NIV's translation was that, quote, a visit required three days, end quote. And this appears to be a rather loose interpretation. This difference in the versions represents something greater. Specifically, that the base texts are often unclear and subject to interpretation. But at the same time, I'm not losing any sleep on the size of that city. And you thought that Jonah was just about a well of a big fish. In Mark chapter 4 verse 31, there is an example of how apologists define arguments in defense of biblical inerrancy that have caused the translators to adopt a linguistically unsound interpretation. As an aside, I will wholeheartedly try to avoid the use of the word apologist. In its traditional sense, it refers to someone who makes an argument in defense of a controversial point. But in today's lexicon, people tend to think it refers to someone who is admitting guilt. Back to Mark. In both the King James and Revised Standard Version, Mark 4.31 reads as, It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it is sown in the earth, is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. And in the NIV, it reads as, It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Here, instead of a literal rendering, Jesus is represented as saying that the mustard seed is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. In prior versions, he essentially calls it the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Along the same line, Bruce Metzger also criticized the addition of the word your into Matthew 13.32, so it becomes, though it is the mustard seed is the smallest of all your seeds. The committee removed the word in the 2011 revision, adjusting the translation at these points so as to avoid an apparent contradiction between the biblical statement and known facts of modern science. But it is believed that Jesus was merely using a hyperbole 
and not attempting to make it a scientifically precise statement. Critics view the NIV's attempt to rescue him from a technically incorrect statement as being misguided. In the book of Acts, there is an apparent contradiction between Acts chapter 9 verse 7 and chapter 22 verse 9 relating to Paul's conversion. 9-7 reads, They heard the sound. And 22-9 reads, But they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Perhaps like the crowd in John 12:29, they heard a sound from heaven, but it seemed like thunder to them, but that's a bit speculative. The Revised Standard Version wrote the two essentially the same as, hearing the voice but seeing no one. The NIV's writing of the two statements seems plausible, but it is a bit awkward. In the NIV, there is a noteworthy footnote on 1 Corinthians 11:4 through 7 which states that the verses may be alternately rendered as, Every man who prays or prophesies with long hair dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with no covering of hair on her head dishonors her head. She is just like one of the shorn women. If a woman has no covering, let her be for now with short hair. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair shorn or shaved, she should grow it again. A man ought not to have long hair. This note is completely different from the Revised Standard Version which stated, Any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven, for if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her wear a veil, for a man ought not to cover his head." It is worth noting that the primary text of the NIV, the part in the book, not in the notes, was very similar to the Revised Standard Version. It may have been an attempt to harmonize this passage with 20th century styles and dress habits. However, Paul's head covering instruction is not being observed in most conservative churches today, who would like to think that their practices are strictly in accordance with the scripture. The alternative translation accommodates them, not to mention that in every painting I ever saw of Jesus or his disciples, they had what most modern observers would recognize as long hair. Roman Catholic critics have also pointed out that the NIV seems to show a Protestant bias in its treatment of the Greek word paradosis, commonly translated as tradition. They claim that the word is literally translated as tradition in places where traditions are being criticized, such as Matthew 15.3 and Colossians 2.8. In other places, it is translated as the word teachings, where traditions are being recommended, such as 1 Corinthians 11.2 and 2 Thessalonians 2.15, not to mention 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Kenneth Barker, a professor of the Old Testament and one of the NIV translators, tried to explain the translation stating that in the NIV, quoting, When paradosis was used in a positive way to refer to the passing on of apostolic teachings, we did not want the reader to think of it as the tradition of the elders as in the Matthew 15 example, or of the traditions in general, but of apostolic teachings in particular. So when we believed that reference was to the latter, we usually rendered the term as teachings to make the meaning clearer to readers. It is questionable if any reader would think that Paul was urging Christians to observe the so-called tradition of the elders in 1 Corinthians or 2 Thessalonians, because the contextual situation should prevent misunderstanding. A more literal translation would have probably served the purpose better. But that's a bit deep for this podcast. Many critics try to convince their audience of an evangelical bias in the version. But it seems that the NIV was not very conservative in the presentation of interpretations associated with traditional theology. 
Perhaps the loudest criticism of the NIV is the version's parting from the established tradition in its translation of the word monogenes in the Gospel of John, namely chapter 1, verses 14 and 18, as well as chapter 3, verses 16 and 18, and in the Epistle of John, chapter 4, verse 9. The NIV translates this word as one and only. Traditionally, the word was translated as only begotten. In the history of Christian doctrine, this translation has some significance. The Nicene Creed, which continues to be used as a confession of faith in many churches, declares that Christ is, quoting, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father. To some, the significance of the word genus and monogenus is that the Son shares the essential qualities of the Father. It expresses the equality between the Father and the Son and prevents what the Arians taught, that the Son is a heavenly subordinate to the Father. I'll cover who the Arians were and what they believed later. In the archaic definition of the word, a person who is begotten shares the natural qualities of the person who begets. Some believe that the traditional misunderstanding of the word monogenous is backed up by linguistic evidence, but the NIV does not use the word, and the phrase chosen as a substitute does not carry the same meaning. Richard Longnecker attempted to explain the thinking of the NIV committee in his article, The One and Only Son, published in The NIV, The Making of a Contemporary Translation in 1991. He presents linguistic evidence supporting the NIV's minimalistic one-and-only rendering and explains that the rendering only begotten is undesirable, quoting him, particularly because it leaves open the possibility of an etymological emphasis on genus, end quote. However, the committee probably did not intend to render the only begotten phrase as an alternate translation as they did offer the traditional phrase in the footnotes until the 2011 revision. And, probably most important, the modern meaning of the word is that begotten means to have brought into existence, and does not mean to be exactly the same. So if the translators were to have stayed true to their mission, to present the word in modern English, they could not have used the word anyway. Of course, none of this explains why the word was used in other parts of the New Testament in earlier versions. And bear in mind that the base word is beget, spelled B-E-G-E-T, begat, spelled B-E-G-A-T, is the past tense, and begotten is the past participle. In Matthew chapter 1 of the King James Version, the whole lineage of Jesus is traced through Abraham to Joseph, the husband of Mary. And in doing so, the word begat is used 39 times to describe how the son descended from the father. For example, Abraham begat Isaac, who begat Jacob, skipping over to David, who begat Solomon, and skipping over to Jacob, who begat Joseph, the husband of Mary. If the word communicated that they were of the same substance, then shouldn't Joseph have been the same as Solomon? I searched high and low and could not find anyone who made that argument. And you may think that this is a relatively minor issue, but there are many who take this issue, and specifically the begotten issue, very seriously. One needs to look no further than the first page of results when searching Google for the phrase NIV history. There is, given its rank in the search results, a seemingly popular website that claims that the NIV is not credible and its readers are being blinded by Satan. That's the website's words, not mine. It is clear that for most readers, the paraphrased renderings with the NIV are sometimes very helpful and even necessary. One such example is in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 8-11. through 11. In this, a literal reading of the base text is that the blessing given to the tribe of Levi 
is expressed with a mixture of singular and plural forms that is likely to confuse most non-scholars, especially in verse 9, where it is said that the tribe of Levi is personified as one man, quoting the Revised Standard Version, disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed thy word and kept thy covenant, end quote. The meaning here is that the priest of the tribe of Levi enforced the word of God without partiality, without showing special favor to relatives. But readers of the Revised Standard Version, who do not understand that the pronouns he and they both refer to the Levites, will quite naturally think that the subject of the pronoun they in the last sentence is brothers and children. The NIV avoids this misunderstanding by substituting a he for the literal they, reading, he did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children but he watched over your word and guarded your covenant. By definition, this passage is not word for word, but a paraphrase, and quite easily arguable as being necessary for the proper understanding of the word. Many similar examples of helpful paraphrases could be provided, but I think you get the point. It must also be noticed that in the NIV, such so-called equivalent renderings are used somewhat sparingly, and are not nearly as often used as they are in several other modern versions, such as the Good News Bible and the New Living Translation. However, and to be expected, some overly dynamic equivalent translations create problems for preachers and teachers who try to use the NIV while focusing on the verbal details of the text. Not to mention that the idiomatic styles seem to make the text less impressive and less memorable than some readers would prefer. For me, I only have to think of the 23rd Psalm, The King James reads, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, while the NIV is, Even though I walk through the darkest valley. I will be the first to admit that I have never started a sentence with the word yea, without an H, and do not remember having ever made a statement where the word thee is repeated. But yet, when someone asks me about the verse, I always quote the King James. And in case you haven't figured it out yet, it's not because I'm a so-called King James-only adherent. It just sounds better and is indeed more memorable. Many critics also claim that the NIV traded elegance and accuracy for readability. I think that the elegance is spot on, but the accuracy is certainly debatable. But you have to remember that the primary intention of the translators was to have something that was both written in contemporary English and made the message clearer. Last, it is widely believed that the growing popularity of modern translations such as the NIV whose popularity increase led to a corresponding decrease for the King James Version, stimulated the swift growth of the King James-only movement in the 1970s. Although the King James-only opinion had existed since the 1920s, it seems to have reached critical mass when fundamentalist Christians began to lay aside the King James for more modern versions. This may very well be true, but as I pointed out several episodes ago, the King James Version was not perfect either. Numerous pastors, church leaders, and biblical scholars utilize the version for their personal study, as well as to lead their congregations. Howard Long, of course, endorsed the translation as well, saying, and I quote, The NIV has been a godsend. It has been a lifesaver. It's something that people can understand. End quote. And with that is the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll give a short review of the translation's histories and draw an analogy on why I use three different translations. As I mentioned last week, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments, questions, and essentially any correspondence can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the term Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.